Welcome to the Jungianthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Episode 10, The Pilgrimage Home with China Gallant. One of the most important features of a pilgrimage is its intimate association with nature through the kaleidoscope of changing weather and landscape that one experiences along the way. Fellow pilgrims, strangers at the start, may feel like old friends by the end of a long journey, made sleeping under the stars, walking through rain and sun together. All difficulty and differences are endured in service of one uniting spiritual goal, reaching the shrine and receiving the blessings of the deity therein. Many contemporary pilgrimages to the Black Madonnas in Europe and Latin America echo the earlier pre-Christian veneration of the earth as the Great Mother. In India and Nepal, nature herself is still worshipped. One of the greatest tasks before us today is to understand what it means earthwise to be human in the world today, as Michael McElroy, atmospheric scientist, told the United Nations. This presentation explores how the experience of pilgrimage and the growing awareness of the Dark Mother can help us to understand more deeply what it means earthwise to be human in the world today. China Gallant is the award-winning author of Women in the Wilderness and Love Cemetery, Unburying the Secret History of Slaves, internationally recognized authority on the Black Madonna, leader of pilgrimages to sacred sites, wilderness guide, public speaker, and professor in residence at CARE Graduate Theology Union. More information can be found at her website, chinagalland.com. Do you really want me to tell you? This was the response China Gallon made to my first and somewhat impertinent question to her, what's most important to you? The inflection that both enwrapped and permeated the response immediately elicited a sense of caution and a sense of respect. If I could translate the intonation into words, it might read like this. I will answer your question, but it will not be a fluffy soundbite reply. If you are ready to meet me in a way that honors something deeply sacred, I will respond honestly and directly. But if you're not, let's stop now. This unabashed regard for and protection of the sacred is what first impressed me about China Gallon and it stays with me now as I introduce her to you. Well, how did she answer the question, you might be wondering? Slowly, carefully, thoughtfully, in a way that built in multiple layers or dimensions a picture of the human pilgrimage. She said, to inspire people, then she paused and thought, to celebrate our relationship with the divine, pause again, to bring Tara West to free Mary from Rome. We only had time to unpack just a little the first two parts of her initial response. I have a feeling the second two parts will be unpacked in just a minute. To inspire what, I asked, 
And what do you mean by the divine quickly followed and her answer wrapped them together? She told me the story of a walk, as she just told you a minute ago, that she had taken one morning. To paraphrase her more eloquent response, every leaf, every bug, everything felt so alive, and all that teeming life was fed into the formation of one syllable, the name of the divine, she said. She told another brief story of herself as a young person being moved and inspired and how that led to wanting more than anything else in the world to assist people in finding what what she had been helped to find. She was careful here to emphasize experience. She was not meaning something intellectual. She was meaning, as I took it anyway, to join with that resonating symbol she came upon or that came upon her during her walk. So this is the person who wants to encourage a joining. In fact, as we talked on a bit, the word relationship in connection with the divine became union. China Gallon's sense of pilgrimage, it seems to me, is always to walk toward, and whenever that holy syllable begins to form, to wade into that stream of oneness which joins us together and dissolves all alienation from each other and from ourselves. This most important thing took on a more immediate quality as China spoke of her husband and her three children, now grown. There was again that enwrapping, permeating tone of voice. The lilt of that sacred syllable was in the air. Would you please welcome China Gallant. Thank you, Peter. I don't know where... Oh, there. You disappeared. Yes, you do win the prize for introduction for eloquence. Um, given the discussion uh, group that, that I was in, there was a great deal of feeling about Colorado, Kosovo. I'd like really to begin, if we can, and for those who feel comfortable, with a moment of silence and just closing our eyes and taking a moment and in whatever form is comfortable for you, making some sort of heartfelt wish for peace. And when you're ready, You'll come back into the room, open your eyes, and rejoin us. That's a good place to begin, the peaceful heart. Because what pilgrimage is really about is the soul's journey to find and touch again and renew peace in our hearts. And I think it's been mentioned today the different ways that people are finding. There is no one way, no one form of pilgrimage. It might be to a foreign country. It might be to your neighborhood garden. Um, there are many different forms of pilgrimage. What I mentioned in this description of my talk today is that uh, it says one of the greatest tasks before us today is to remember and to understand what it means earthwise 
to be human in the world today. Now that came, that's a rather truncated quote, from a report that was given that Harvard did a three-year study on the relationship of religion and ecology. In this report, this Michael McElroy um, is head of one of the departments, the science departments at Harvard. This was delivered to the UN last fall in looking at how we are going to face the next millennia. And what the study showed was that we know so much more in the world of science today about what is actually happening to the environment than is being conveyed in any meaningful way to people in a way that we can use. And the need is for there to be a connection, a renewed relationship between religion and science. That the churches have the means to disseminate the information that science is discovering about the tremendous interrelatedness of all being that the Buddha has been talking about for centuries, but that now at our cost we are discovering is literally true as we burn down the rainforest and then have less air to breathe or no longer have the wonderful protective shield and now increase skin cancer. So we're learning this lesson very painfully and there needs to be a way to pass this along much more quickly. Um, and they talked at the UN about having to reimagine how we're to maintain our humanity in relation to the earth coming to the next century as we go into the next century. One of the problems with talk like this is that it's so abstract. Um, in order to... Um, Thomas Berry, in his wonderful book, The Dream of the Earth, talks about how it's one thing to know that we need to change, it's another thing to tap the energy to change. And that what archetypes, and all you unions out there should understand this, what archetypes help us do is tap the energy to change. So I'm going to show you some slides. I want to tell some stories first, because I think not only do children need good stories, we need stories today. Um, and I'll show you some slides that will illustrate and give you an example of an archetype that I think is arising for us today, and we're lucky enough to have here with us today Fred Gustafson, who's also written about the Black Madonna archetype. Um, I think his book is in the bookstore as well. Um, you'll see some slides today I, of these images that suddenly we are becoming aware of today that have actually, they're quite ancient. They've been with us for centuries. Um, this is, what I have to present is material that's completely traditional, nothing new. This is what's so radical about it, in my opinion, that people are not familiar with it. It's not so well known in our culture, what I'm going to be showing you images of today. Let me back up. The Dalai Lama talks about how it's useless to despair and become discouraged, which sometimes with the events such as Kosovo and Colorado, it would be easy to get discouraged. If, and certainly sad. But giving up, despairing, he's saying, this is useless, it's not helpful. What we need to do is generate courage equal to the size of our difficulties. How do you generate courage equal to the size of these kinds of difficulties? Well, I think in the repository of human stories, we find immense wisdom. And that's part of how I generate courage. And I want to tell you a couple of the stories. You'll see images of, from these stories that I'm going to tell you. 
One of the stories that motivated me and that was an inadvertent pilgrimage, I think Valvoline mentioned how some keep, you start on a journey, sometimes you don't realize it's a pilgrimage. When it's halfway through or at the end, you realize, oh, that was a sacred journey. That was transformational. I went to Nepal in 1980 to find and study about Tara, who's the female Buddha in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There are many stories about Tara and how she came into being. She's also considered the mother of the Buddhas. But the one that meant the most to me was her vow to only be enlightened in a woman's body for all time until all suffering was ended, for all beings in all worlds. This is in a time when it was believed that in order to be enlightened, one had to have a man's body. In fact, she was being encouraged to pray that she would either magically transform herself into a man so that she could be enlightened, because that's all that was missing, they told her. You just are missing the form. You're so developed. You're so compassionate. You're so wise. But if you just had the male form, you'd be fine. I think somewhere we're still hearing that story. But she said, uh, or, or if you can't change yourself in this lifetime, then what you can do is pray that you'll be reincarnated as a man. And then the moment you're born, like that, you'll be enlightened. And of course, Tara, being as compassionate and wise as she was, she took no offense and she said, thank you very much. I've thought about this for a long time, but relying on her own experience, she said, I know that this is not true. Worldly beings are always confused about this matter. But nowhere can I find what is male. Nowhere can I find what is female. These are simply different forms of being, no more separate than a wave is from water. But, since most Buddhists have chosen to come in the form of a man, perhaps it would be more helpful if I vowed for all time to only be enlightened in a woman's body. And so she was. So that's one very important story. And that drew me out on my initial what became pilgrimage. When I went to Nepal to find this beautiful Tara that you'll see, I discovered that she had many different forms, some of which were dark, black, fierce. I discovered Durga in the Hindu pantheon, from which Buddhism ultimately comes. And the story of Durga is a story that, for me, also generates a lot of courage and I think is important for us today. And you'll see an image of it when I show the slides. In this ancient story that was written down in northwest India at least 1,500 years ago, and I'm sure it's a much older story than that, it was said, and the story sounds very contemporary, that the world was on the verge of destruction. Rivers were drying up, plants wouldn't grow, people were starving, there were wars everywhere. Sounds very much like today. And it's said that this was occurring because there were demons loose in the world that were so powerful that each one of the gods went out onto the battlefield and tried to fight these demons, but they were so strong, the demons won. Now, demons traditionally in Buddhism and Hinduism are symbols or metaphors for our own human failings of greed, hatred, jealousy, delusion. So hear the story in that way, in this metaphoric way. So the, the gods, the demons were so powerful, all the gods finally gave up. They retired to the Himalayas, leaving the world to be destroyed. And this is what a friend told me it was like to be in Sarajevo during the bombing, and what I'm sure people in Kosovo feel like today. Even God has left the world. 
So as the gods were standing around, and I like to think of them as sort of kibbutzing there in the Himalayas, scratching their heads, what happened? How could this be? We're so powerful, and yet we could not defeat these demons. They're so strong. Suddenly someone remembered. This time has been foretold. Demons would rise up who were so powerful that they could defeat the gods. But the prophecy was this, that when this occurred, a woman would rise up, a goddess would come, and only a woman was powerful enough to defeat the demons who were going to destroy the world. So this, too, is a wonderful metaphor that many, many of us have learned about our lives. Only when we give up what we know can new information come in and show us a way out that has never even been considered. So when the gods remembered this prophecy that this goddess would come and rise up, they gathered together and they shot forth springs, streams of divine fire. And out of this divine fire, a pillar of flames as high as the Himalayas themselves rose up. And out of this divine fire came Durga, her face blazing like a thousand suns, the story says, ten hands and arms, each holding a weapon of the gods, riding a lion. She goes out onto the battlefield and it said, every time Durga sighed, a thousand female warriors sprung to her aid. Well, pretty soon the goddess and her helpers were making short shrift of all the demons and the corpses of the demons were piling up on the battlefield. And I won't go in. The story is 700 verses long. And at one point, Kali springs out of Durga's forehead with her long red tongue and her forearms enormous black hag with pendulous breasts and every time she took a step she'd tromp on whole troops she'd throw elephants into her mouth and laugh anyway the goddesses were having a field day and Lord Sumba the lord of the gods was of course not on the battlefield these guys never are they're in the pentagon they're in the Kremlin. they're somewhere else telling everyone else what to do so but finally Sumba has no demons left to send out to battle the goddesses so he calls out to Durga and he says, the only reason you're winning is because you have all these helpers. You've got Kali, you've got all these goddesses, and you can't beat me by yourself. And she said, no problem. He challenged her. He said, meet me alone in the battlefield. And so she said, fine. And she incorporated all these goddesses back into herself and Kali. She took them all back in. And then alone she rode her lion out onto the battlefield to meet Lord Sumba, the Lord of the Demons. This was an enormous conflict for the fate of the world itself. They were seen in hand-to-hand combat. Their combat and their battle rose up into the sky and cracked the ceiling of the heavens. The mountains shook, it said. The seas boiled. And finally, with her ten hands and arms, Durga took a dagger and stabbed Sumba in the heart. That's when Sumba was finally, once and forever, defeated and fell out of the sky. And a friend, another teacher, asked me, how did she defeat the demon? She kept pressing me. I said, she pierced his heart. That's what the story says. She pierced his heart. And this is what it takes to defeat the demons of greed, of hatred, of destruction. Opening the heart. This is the only victory that is lasting. When he fell out of the sky, everyone came to to Durga and praised her, all the gods, gathered around and they crowned her the queen of the universe and begged her to stay and rule the world. Clearly, she was in in control. 
People begged her to come. Rivers resumed their courses. Dancing and singing returned to the world. And Durga said, thank you very much. I'm very honored, but I'm not going to stay and rule the world. But don't worry. If the world is ever threatened, I will return. And I will feed my devotees from my own body. For Durga is also nature, Prakriti, nature herself, who feeds us, who suckles us, who sustains us, whom we are completely dependent upon. And we imagine in our 24-hour consumer society that we don't need, that we can ignore, that we can destroy. But we can only live for a matter of minutes without air, a matter of days without water, a matter of weeks without food. We are completely dependent upon her. And I think it's this complete denial of our dependence that is so horrifying and drives us to attempt to destroy the very thing that supports us and feeds us. But the good news is that as in nature, whenever you find a poisonous plant, an antidote, a plant that's an antidote, is soon found nearby. So at this time, I think it's no accident that today, with our global society, we have access today to the wisdom traditions from all over the world, which Houston has been such a wonderful leader in bringing to us, helping us understand and develop awareness and respect for. So it's in these wisdom traditions that we now can find the wisdom that we need today. And I think part of what's the reason that you're going to be hearing, if you haven't heard already, but my guess is being Jungians, you probably have heard something about the Black Madonna, that this in some ways is like that female energy returning to the world just when it's needed, that's rising up. And by female, I mean the way Tara meant it. Male and female, something we're always deluded about, but that exists within each and every one of us, that's part of our very being, and that male and female are simply different forms of, not something separate, not something exclusive. So it's rising up now, and I think we're becoming aware of these images because that have been with us so long, because we need them now, and because ultimately the Black Madonna is a form of the great Earth Mother once again rising up and showing us our need to respect and honor her and be in relationship with her in a way that we've forgotten today, that we've lost as part of our heritage. So with that, I'm going to stop the storytelling and get on to showing you some slides. This inadvertent pilgrimage began, as many do, in Kathmandu. This is the stupa, great stupa at Bodhnaut. This is the green Tara, the main Tara of the Kadira. Tara is also a forest goddess. She's the goddess of the Kadiravani forest. And her right step leg is extended because she's always ready to step into the world to help you. The moment you think of her, she's known for being the most compassionate, the quickest to come to anyone's aid, whether you've ever believed in her or not. Now, this little Tara is in a village outside of Kathmandu. It's believed to be growing out of the rock. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, this is a phenomena called Ranjung, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama assured me himself that this really does occur. And, and Tibetan Buddhism is rife with instances of this phenomena, where a deity comes out of a substance as hard and seemingly impenetrable as a rock, because everything is 
an aspect of the divine, is really a manifestation of the divine. And so he says that when the power of the mind is concentrated and the heart is devoted, it can bring even a deity out of a substance as hard as the rock, or I would like to add, as hard as the human heart, because surely that is even harder than the rock. So what the Buddhists have mapped and these other worlds that are open to us now is the interior world that we know so little about. We've mapped the exterior. We know the power of technology. But this is the power of the human mind that can bring a deity even out of a rock. Now, I don't necessarily believe this is true. I've written about this in Longing for Darkness. Um, I took a geologist with me to look at this. It's a wonderful metaphor, though. And at the same time this phenomena was becoming known, which started to be about 15 years ago in Kathmandu, where reportedly this has grown from two inches to about eight or nine now. Um, I have gone back and measured it as well, but that's another story. Um, It's important to realize that this is a metaphor, and at the same time, as I was saying, Mary was reported appearing in the barks of trees in Poland and Newsweek. That was a story. Of course, there are apparitions that have been reported all over the world. I'm not taking a position. I'm not saying these things are necessarily true. I think they are indicators of what is happening to us psychically and collectively in our unconscious. And wonderful, joyful metaphors. This is the traditional green tar in the center with her 21 forms, and you'll see that at least two of these are black. Now, this is going up into the Solo Kumbu region of Nepal on a more formal pilgrimage up into about nearly 15,000 feet to the monastery at Pangboche, where every year at the full moon, people make the annual trek for the dances of the monks who literally dance with death. There they are in their costumes with the mask. Because when you go on a pilgrimage and you step outside of time, this is one of the forces that you encounter, is death. The possibility of your own, the fact that it will come in your own life, and what are we to make of our lives as we accept this part of existence. These are more of the uh, delightful play that goes on with the monks as they reenact their drama every year at Tengboche. Now, this is a very traditional form of pilgrimage. This woman is a Westerner, but she's walking with a torma cake. Uh, these people were walking for miles, bringing their offerings, because as Phil was saying last night, gift is always part of the pilgrimage. You always make an offering. So this offering was being carried miles up in the Himalayas to the monastery as part of the celebration. This is a little nunnery that's up above Tangboche. Now we're in India. We've switched. Um, I've tried to encapsulate several journeys here. This is Durga. This is an unfinished piece that was uh, every year in all over India and Nepal. The festival of Durga is celebrated when it's believed Durga returns for nine days and defeats the demons. This is Sumba, who she's about to defeat. And she's riding her lion. And these statues are made, thousands and thousands of them, and are carried through the streets during this pilgrimage that people make from all over India to celebrate this feast. 
And then at the end of the festival, they're thrown into the river. They're returned and dissolved in water. They're all made out of clay. So this is Durga. She hasn't yet had the implements placed in her hands, but this is Durga defeating the demons. This is a statue that's in the Philadelphia Museum that shows very clearly her defeating the demon and piercing his heart. I also, when I was in India, went to the festival for Kali. Kali's puja follows. Uh, Durga is in October. Kali is in November. It's a shorter feast that goes on for five days. But again, people come from all over to make offerings to the goddess. And this is, in Calcutta, for reasons I don't quite understand, Kali is often depicted as blue instead of black. Um, She's gotten lighter and lighter over the years, (laughs) even a gray sometimes. But these are, this is from a a statue that was in a little pondal, a little temporary altar. These were built, these were all over the city. Every neighborhood had its own pondal, its own little offering to Kali for her feast. They've offered flowers. This is a beautiful statue in Varanasi, which is another wonderful pilgrimage site where the Buddha gave his first sermon. It's also right on the Ganges River. It's the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. 6,000 years that we know people have been there. I was actually on my way to interview His Holiness, and I was in India, and I was going up to Dharamsala to see him, but someone took me into the Shiva temple, and as we were walking past this small room, I noticed this dark statue who looks very much like Tara in terms of the quality of peacefulness that she exudes. But I was told by the guide that this was a form of Kali. I'd never seen a peaceful Kali. And I showed it to a Hindu scholar after I got home because the guides aren't necessarily always accurate on the site. Uh, He said, yes, you Americans, you've launched onto this very violent, fierce image of Kali, but Kali also has white forms, red forms, so you can also be peaceful. In fact, I think this statue is probably Parvati, but it was very helpful for many years to think that it was perhaps a peaceful form of Kali. But what I realized standing in front of this statue is that though I could study Tibetan Buddhism all my life or study Hinduism, there was a way in which I would always be an outsider and that I'd left my own upbringing in Christianity behind. And that I had seen a photograph of a black Madonna I'd not, not made much of it, but a friend a couple of years before in divinity school had showed me a photograph of the Swiss Madonna, and something told me as I stood in front of the statue, though, I had an epiphany, that this stream of darkness is related and it's open, it was open to me in my own tradition in the West. So, from India, and his, I discussed it with His Holiness, too, and he said, yes, he thought Tara and Mary were a very good connection to make, a very good bridge. And he also really encourages people to honor your own tradition, not to abandon it. He's not trying to win people to Buddhism. You know, you can study, you be a student of Buddhism and also have your own tradition. I went from India to Switzerland. How many of you have been there? Have you seen this statue? It's near the Jung Institute. It's, it's at, at Einsiedon, which is not far from Zurich. It's about an hour and a half by train. Jung, I was told, and it's from Fred's book uh, from his thesis there talks about this statue as a form, a manifestation of the goddess Isis. <coughs> Though I was never able to find anything definitive at that particular site to say, yes, Isis was worshipped here. I don't know if that was the case. Uh, I could not find that out. What I did discover, though, 
is that there is a unique crystalline structure there in the mountains at Einsiedeln that is nowhere else in the Alps in Switzerland, which touches on what someone mentioned earlier, the energy of the earth itself. There's this whole idea that like the human body, the earth itself has meridians, it has forms of energy, and that sacred sites, they're not places that we can make sacred, but they're sites that ever since humankind began migrating, where people found, as Phil said last night, something happened to them. Well, some people would maintain it's because of the energy of the earth itself, the quality of it that's found there at that site, or some unique geological and natural feature of natural history. Something happens to you there, and then this becomes a sacred site that then each succeeding culture takes over, renames the gods or goddesses in, it, in its own image. And so today we have Black Madonna sites where some... There's some evidence, at least at some of them, these were pre-Christian sites where the great Earth Mother was worshipped before. You have to look at the specific site to find out which goddess might have been worshipped there before. And evidence is not always there for each one of them. So there is no simple one source for these sites. This gives you a little bit more of an idea of what her shrine looks like from the inside. It's a tiny black marble chapel. She's like in a womb or a cave that's set inside this enormous 18th century basilica. But this site actually goes back to the 9th century. That's when it first began. This is the outside of this church. And I want people to see this and understand that the Black Madonna is a phenomena that is mainstream Christianity. There is nothing... uh, some people have tried to make her part of a very esoteric tradition, part of a heretical tradition that you find in the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the idea that Magdalene carried Christ's child into France. I really want to separate the Madonna from that tradition. That's very speculative. There are a lot of problems with that. And I encourage and invite you to consider what it means to let it be part of mainstream religion or belief systems to have a dark woman who was venerated as a Madonna. And I'll read one passage from my latest book about that in a moment. But this is a mainstream pilgrimage tradition, and the black Madonnas are all great miracle workers and powerful healers, and there's a great tradition of pilgrimage connected with them. This is a statue that's in the Camargue in southern France, at a church called Les Femmes de la Mer. I was told there was a black Madonna. In fact, the Madonna upstairs is quite white. But in the crypt of the church is this saint. And, you know, I'd said when I was standing in India, I thought, these things are connected, but I don't know how or if I'll ever be able to prove it. But what I discovered is that this Saint Sarah is the patron of the gypsies. And when the gypsies come every May, and I'll be there, I'm going in two weeks back to France, for her feast, the gypsies call her Sarah Kali because they have brought their dark mother on their migrations throughout the Mediterranean into France. That too may be a source for some of these dark Madonnas. Here's Le Puy. I'm showing you not only sites that I've been to, but some of these are also sites that I'm going to within the next two weeks with a group that's traveling to these shrines to see and celebrate this dark mother whose awareness we're having at this time, who we're becoming aware of. This is a Madonna at Le Puy, a very famous Madonna in France, in southern France. They make lace in Le Puy, so they clothed her in the local lace. 
there is legend at least that associates this Madonna with a statue of Isis and Horus. It was claimed that Isis was worshipping Lepuy. Now, Isis was worshipped all over the Roman Empire up to the 3rd century. So some of these statues possibly could have been, but a lot more research needs to be done. This is another very mysterious Black Madonna that's in Clermont-Ferrand. This is a Black Madonna at Clermont. These in France seem to be from the Romanesque period, from the 10th to the 13th century. They're all meant to be living with the people. You see, she's on a palanquin here. This is a Notre Dame de Port, also in this area, the Clermont-Ferrand area. They're taken out and paraded around. This is the Madonna of the Crusades. There's some talk that some of them may have come from the Mediterranean and been brought back by crusaders. This is a Madonna at Maymac. Now, would you have ever thought these were French? These are French? What we think of? Here's one, La Chapelle Jeunesse, who's been taken out, as she is every year on her feast, and paraded around the village well, because there seems to be a connection with these deities these images or these statues with water, with natural features, sometimes with lightning and thunder, sometimes with storms, but particularly water, the Black Madonna seems to be connected to. This is one that's set high up in the cliffs at Rocamador, where pilgrims walk on their knees, or climb on their knees, the 240 feet up into a rocky limestone cliff above the valley floor. This is the Black Madonna at Montserrat. This is the statue of Mary that St. Ignatius made a vigil before and then put down his sword as a soldier and became a Catholic priest and went on to found the Jesuit order. So this is the patron of Catalonian Spain and also one who had a great deal to do with the founding of the Jesuits. Therefore, his influence is more than we know. But it was, when I went to see the Madonna in Switzerland, you know, I stood before her, she was beautiful, but I, but so what? You know, this was fascinating, but I didn't have any connection. But the priest there suggested that I go to Poland, because in Poland there's a great pilgrimage that occurs every year in August. People walk from all over Poland. I walked from Warsaw to Częstochowa to her shrine. That's about 200 miles. If pe- that was nine days. Some people walk from Gdańsk for two weeks. This Madonna was the unofficial patron of solidarity. And she stirred up such feelings of solidarity during the time of the communist rule that when copies of this icon were circulated from village to village, the authorities arrested the painting because it sparked such fervor and solidarity uh, that they would not allow it to be circulated. So she was a great symbol, and Valenza always wore a pin with her image on it and gave his Nobel Prize to this monastery when it was over. And that story has never really been written of the influence. And when I interviewed Valencia, he said he thinks that that has something to do with the nonviolent nature of that revolution because they could call upon this culture and the Madonna, even though, of course, many people in solidarity were not necessarily Catholic. He didn't want to make it official in that way. She was the unofficial patron. It was that image of the mother that he felt allowed and helped him keep that revolution non-violent, which then set off, of course, the Czech Revolution and freed Eastern Europe. A very, very important icon. And there's much more to say about each one of these, but this is just a little glimpse of what it was to be on that pilgrimage in Poland.
sleeping in the fields, walking in the sunshine and the rain throughout the day, sometimes up as, as long as 25 miles a day. Now, this is a very arduous pilgrimage made on foot. This is a very traditional pilgrimage. People also today, you can take a plane, take a car. It can be quite different, but this was a very traditional form, and it was powerful to put your feet to the earth and let the walking lead you and unfold the nameless way of the pilgrimage that is, crosses, knows no borders. People came from all over for this pilgrimage. It was really a great purification practice. And part of what was done just before we entered the monastery, because to go back to Sumba having his heart pierced, this is a form of purification. That's what pilgrimage is about. How do we have a peaceful heart? So part of what the ardor, ardor of this journey is about is breaking down our defenses against that hardness of heart. One of the desert fathers says, acquire a heart and you will know God. That's the task. And in the New Testament it says, James tells us that pure religion is this. Keeping, coming to the aid of widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself uncontaminated by the world. That's it. That's what it says. Pure religion is this. So it's that keeping oneself uncontaminated, that cleaning out. That's what pilgrimage, the spiritual pilgrimage can allow us to do. There was a great deal of, these are the nuns and priests that were dancing. I'd never seen a nun or priest dance when I was growing up in Catholic schools. So, uh, there was a great deal of celebration also in this pilgrimage. In addition to the walking every day, the praying, the singing that goes on. Again, another dancer. Just as we were waiting, as we queued up to enter the town of Shenstahova, there were hundreds of thousands of people in this pilgrimage, so it got slower and slower as we got closer to the shrine and we're actually about to enter. This is the Madonna. They've moved an image of her out in front, but they had mass actually in front of this for a million people. This is the Madonna inside the shrine, just before the silver scroll that covers the icon was being lowered. It's only open 30 minutes a day, three times a day. This is the crowd that gathered in front of the monastery. So this is a very rich uh, tradition that that exists all over Europe. And I know Phil last night mentioned uh, the St. James pilgrimage, which covers an even longer distance in Spain. But I'd like to suggest that this is a tradition that we can link up with in this country. We can join the Latino culture, which has kept it alive, and their pilgrimages that are made every year to Chimayo. People walk from Albuquerque. They walk from Santa Fe. Their pilgrimage is made in the valley to the Madonna at San Juan de los Lagos. Or we can come up with our own. I think people, when going to visit national parks, in many ways this is a secular form of pilgrimage. We're going to holy sites. So this is a tremendous human need. This is Brazil. I knew about the Black Madonnas in Europe, in the Caribbean, Central and Latin America, but there are many in Central and Latin America. So the patron of Brazil is also a Black Madonna, which is to be expected. Switzerland was a little more of a surprise, but much more understandable, I thought, in Brazil. But this Madonna is called Our Lady of Aparecida. This is a little, uh, and there there's, again, great inclusiveness of African religions. This is somebody who's part of the Umbanda tradition who's outside dancing for the Virgin. Because in Brazil, Catholicism is laced with Africanism. 
and includes and simply has incorporated many other traditional elements within the celebration of Catholicism there. These are pilgrims offering their candles. You can see these long candles, but of course they're all melting immediately. It's quite a scene. Now, inside you see the sign in the back It says, The Mother of the Excluded. This is the Black Madonna. She's the Mother of the Excluded. The priest is holding up, and as true with many of these statues, they're very small. This Madonna was only about maybe 24 inches high, but she's enormously powerful. There were 70,000 people in that cathedral that day, and her feast, like Durga's, is celebrated for nine days every October. What was going on in India had its parallel here in Brazil. And there is a great democratic influence that pilgrimage has. It's a great leveler of caste and people. Uh, everyone is equal as a pilgrimage. So I woke up staying nearby in a nunnery with a bat in my room, firecrackers going off at 7 in the morning, um, and there saw one of the most powerful liturgies that I've ever seen. This little Madonna is paraded through the church, and then after she's... And this particular photograph, I marvel at how it came out. It almost looks as though this, she's, she has disappeared. There's a void, there's an abyss there. You cannot make out the statue. It's cold, this darkness that is also emptiness. This is what he's bringing to the church. People are reaching out to touch her, but the way the photograph came out, you can't tell that anything is there. It's like the way Ramakrishna describes the darkness of Kali. It's like space or the ocean that looks dark to us, and we go and we put our hands in it and lift it up, and it has no color. It only looks dark to us because it's so far away. It's so distant from us. Or as Gregory of Nietzsche would say, it's the incomprehensibility of God. He talked a great deal about God's darkness, the way of darkness. It's the incomprehensibility of God. So in this liturgy, which you can see, I think it'll be clear when I explain it, after the Mass was offered, a woman came up and took the microphone and looked kind of like an upstart, but I didn't speak Portuguese. I wasn't sure what was going on. And she started narrating a scene. And what began to happen was people, one by one, came up this long aisle through the nave of the church. One was a, was a man who came with his hands as though he was in chains, wearing a convict suit, walking slowly up to the altar. Then came a woman who was dressed to stand for a prostitute. She had a bright, brilliant red sequin top, very skinny, very hugged her body tightly, stiletto heels. She represented women in prostitution. A very pregnant young girl came up. Somebody came with an IV in their arm to represent the people who have AIDS. And then last came a dark, old peasant woman. And all these people walked up to this altar. It was a great hexagon hexagon in the middle of this enormous church that holds 70,000 people and went off to disparate parts and turned their backs on one another. And then the last person who came in to fill out this tableau was someone representing Christ. And he came up and he took the hand of each person and he began to make everyone connect. He began to bring them together. And they all stood around and he gave the Black Madonna to the old woman. That's who's in the center. It's this old dark grandmother. And everyone gathered around her, connected by Christ, who made their connection, and is dancing around the old woman. Because this dark mother, as the archbishop explained to me, represents all people. 
and what she represents for us now is what we need to include now, all who have been left out. So this is a very powerful, simple tableau. I want, I'm going to read you a passage really quickly that will summarize a lot about this dark mother and I think fill in some blanks that I'm surely leaving as I leap over years and centuries and cultures here in, in what is really almost an impossible task in terms of summation. Uh, the Archbishop there, Dom Lorscheider, is telling me that she represents those who've been marginalized by conventional society, the poor, the broken, and the dark, and that she is the champion of all. Then this is me reflecting. This dark one who champions all that left is left out symbolizes all that we need to include now. In finding this dark mother in culture after culture, I find that she weaves a bond that reaches beyond cultures. Across time, she gives us back our history with one another. She provides a way across cultures, a bridge, giving us back not only the connection between the sacred and the world of nature, the body, but she gives us the very ground of being, the world body in which we live with all creatures. She gives us earth, water, air, and fire, creation, then goes beyond, helps us cross over, is the other side, both the river and the shore. Whoever this dark one is, whether she appears as virgin, mother, goddess, crone, or queen, she is found underlying so many traditions. The Aztec goddess, Tonantzin, at whose site Our Lady of Guadalupe was discovered, the patron of all the Americas. La Pachamama, the source of all life in the Andes, beloved by the people. The Egyptian African goddess Isis, whose worship was existed in Europe up to the third century. The Hindu Kali carried from India to France by the gypsies, or the Orishas brought from Africa to Brazil. She is the ground, both the earth itself, but also the root below. She gives us our depth and the darkness we need to grow. The taller the tree, the deeper the root system. She is the tree of life, this little dark one, La Moranita, our mother. And I, too, a white woman, can claim her, for she is also the ancient earth mother of old Europe, pre-Indo-European Europe, the indigenous, black, Caucasian goddess of regeneration and fertility. The earth mother who was worshipped when the color black symbolized light and white meant death. We need only examine our own tradition, look beneath our feet. She has been there all along. Venerated for centuries in great cathedrals around the globe, these Madonnas have long been proclaimed to be powerful healers and miracle workers, and yet few have commented on the darkness of her face. Many say it was because she survived fires that destroyed all but her, or they say that candle smoke made her dark. Could it not be, too, that she is dark because she enters lives on fire, because she has absorbed so much suffering? Some say that she is black for no reason, that her darkness means nothing. That's what a couple of priests told me. Oh, it means nothing. Others call her a symbol, an archetype, psyche shadow. I say that she is all of these things, and she is also a black woman, a woman of color, a brown woman, a red woman, and more. She is not white. She includes all color. 
She is dark because we as human beings come in so many colors and no one is to be left out. Like a river, her darkness comes from many sources, a multitude of streams. She surfaces in Europe and near eastern sites where black meteorite stones fell out of the sky and were then venerated. She rises by healing waters, streams, rivers, and deltas. Her waters are fed by a tradition in which black is positive. It symbolized wisdom. The Shulamite, I am black and I am lovely from the Song of Songs, symbolizes the womb of God, the darkness that is generative, the world of medieval mystics, the womb of enlightenment from the east, from Africa, the root, wisdom herself. She is rising now to remind us that what we call darkness, this is what astrophysics has have discovered, is actually invisible light. That the luminous world is only 10% of what exists. That 90% of the matter in the universe is what the physicists now call dark matter. So we can't see it. 90% of what is, is invisible. Darkness matters, is to be valued, treasured. The image of the Dark Mother, the Black Madonna, which is simply the Christian form, is arising in the human psyche now because we need her. For images are vessels, they're portals, they're doorways that allow the porous membrane of the unseen world to pour through to us. What we need now is an awareness and understanding of our indivisibility of our relationship with the earth and with all her creatures. We are completely dependent upon our relationships and we are dying because we leave out this relatedness with the earth and with each other. The shouts for a parasita in the church reach a new crescendo. The priest takes her down from the altar again, elevating her. This little dark one, this black Mary. Suddenly I remember Gabriel and his answer to Mary when she asked him in Luke, how can I conceive a child? I know not a man. He says, the Holy Spirit will come over you and the power of the Most High will cover you with its shadow, and so the child will be called holy and will be the Son of God. The Black Madonna is also Mary at the moment of conception, impregnation, when she is shadowed by God. It was God's shadow that made the child holy, his darkness. This is what it looks like to be covered by God. So in addition to this democratizing effect and this inclusiveness that, that is part of the tradition of pilgrimage, I want to remind you that Malcolm X made a very important pilgrimage that some people don't realize or know about. Later in his life, he went to Mecca as well as a Muslim. And what he discovered was that all the, that there were pilgrims there from, of all different nationalities, blonde, blue-eyed, and that he was treated just the same by the white Muslims as he was by the black Muslims. This had a profound effect upon him, and really it still has an effect on this country, because it made him throw out his ideas about black nationalism and realize they were all part of the human family. So in the end, he came to a position of racial harmony and tolerance and understanding because of the profound effect that that pilgrimage had on him when he went to Mecca. From the blue-eyed blondes, as he said, to the black-skinned Africans. It rearranged his thinking. And this is what pilgrimage does. It opens you up. It flushes out your old way of thinking. 
So I mentioned a little bit about today in terms of where we can go for pilgrimage within the United States. Um, and I showed you some images of places that I'm going to in France. Let me finish here really quickly. This is this is actually the little Madonna of a Parasita. It's the, a copy of the Madonna that's passed through the church that everyone's touching. The real statue is behind a bulletproof shield in the wall because people have actually tried to attack the Madonna. A fundamentalist Protestant came in and tried to destroy the statue a few years ago. So she's placed up high in the wall. This is South Texas, San Juan de las Lagos. This is where the migrant workers go. You know, we enjoy our wonderful food, our lettuce, our lunches, and uh, the migrant workers who pick this food for us in this country often are people who go to this. There's a little Madonna here near the Mexican border where thousands of migrant workers go. They built this church, this basilica, as the priests explained, with their nickels and pennies from their work in the field. They come here before the harvest, and after the harvest to give thanks. And this is the little Madonna of San Juan de los Lagos, another miracle-working dark Madonna. And there's a wonderful tradition that's associated with some of these Madonnas. It's true of this Madonna, too. It said that she, this Mary was appearing in the fields, uh, outside, and the priests didn't like this. They wanted the people inside. And so they went to Mexico and had a copy made of the San Juan Madonna in Jalisco, Mexico. And that's what this Madonna is, so that they could get the people in the church. And there's a dark Madonna in Italy that I went to see at Frasino near Verona. And the, the story that's painted at the monastery itself shows how she was discovered out in a field. And the young man who found her in the field, and many of these Madonnas are supposedly found in trees or in caves or buried in the ground, and then it's declared a miracle and a shrine is built. But he took her and tried to bring her into the church, and it said that Mary would keep going back and getting in the tree. There's this profound connection with the natural world. And so, back and forth, they take her out of the tree, they bring her in the church, she'd go back out, she'd appear in the tree again. So finally, when you go into this church, you see a tabernacle where they've actually cut part of the tree down, that's what's in the tabernacle and her altar off to the side is a piece of the tree with the statue in the tree. So they let her stay in the tree, but they took the tree inside the church. So there's something to really think about here. <laughs> uh, but this Madonna too at this site was appearing outside, but they got her inside. And two at Medjugorje, Mary was appearing on the hill, but it was causing so much trouble. The authorities didn't like it that finally... Uh, Somehow, supposedly, the apparition got the message to please appear indoors, as she does today, in the choir loft in Medjugorje, where I was fortunate enough to be. This is uh, San Juan, this is uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe up at the top here. This is from the altarpiece in Santa Fe. Guadalupe appeared as a dark Indian, pregnant Indian woman to Juan Diego in the 15th, 16th century. Um, she did not appear as the kind of whitewashed Madonna we often see that's passed off as Guadalupe. She was, she too is a dark mother who appeared at the site of Tonantzin, who's the Aztec goddess of the earth. And this is a feast that is a, an amalgamation of Native American tradition of dancing for the Virgin, or dancing for the gods, but that has been now um, altered and is a dance for the Virgin for Guadalupe that takes place in Las Cruces, New Mexico at Tortuga Pueblo. This is Native American and Mexican practice. So 
These are pilgrimages that go on in this country today that we can take part in. There's another famous pilgrimage to Guadalupe in Watsonville, California. Every year, her feast is December 12th. It begins about the 9th or 10th. This is from a quilt that a woman made to the Madonna of Poland. And I wanted to end with this image uh, as a tribute to the people of Kosovo and what's going on for people around the world this is a, a contemporary Madonna painted by Robert Lentz. Many of you may know his wonderful work. He's a contemporary icon painter in Albuquerque. He painted this Madonna, the mother of the disappeared, because he said she too is in solidarity with the disappeared. The white hand on the left of this icon is the hand of the death squad in El Salvador, La Mano Blanco, the white hand, who would come to warn you when you were about to be disappeared. So she too is in solidarity with the disappeared, the people everywhere who are disappearing. Set in the, here in this case, in the backdrop of a contemporary jungle in Central America. So that's the end of the slides and I want to add one more note here, which is that I want to suggest that this image of the Dark Mother that we're starting to become aware of and there have been a spate of books about and you'll be reading more about, it, all since 1985. Um, that have been going on. That this Madonna is actually, this image is actually a holographic image that's rising up out of human consciousness. This Western form of the ancient Earth Mother. She too is a phenomena of what the Tibetans call Well, that might be very fruitful for you to explore. The one thing, the one way I could connect it to Tara is that because of her enormous compassion, Tara's famous for coming to you in whatever form you need to see her. It said, even a bumblebee. You know, it isn't even necessarily human. It could be masculine. I mean, she'll come in whatever form you need. And I realized for myself, someone asked me what I say more about Medjugorje. Um, I, I've written about that too a little in Longing for Darkness. You can read that. So I, don't, I won't say much. Except that when I was at Medjugorje, uh, I did have the blessing of being with the, interviewing the visionaries and being with them in the loft while they were seeing the apparition, which was quite remarkable. I did not see her. But when I left there, I, I felt truly joyful and I felt like what was happening at Medjugorje was really, this as though the veil was parting, that the divine is always with us. And that was simply a way in which people were beginning to understand that, but it wasn't really revealing anything that isn't always true. And as I walked up on the hill the next day where the apparition first appeared, I realized, well, of course this divine would appear, you know, as Mary, because this was a Christian country. Well, in part a Christian country. It's also, I know, it's in Bosnia, it's also Muslim. But um, she would come in a form that's familiar to people. She wouldn't appear as Tara. But for me, Mary is Tara's form in the West because that's the, the tradition that we've had, and so should take whatever form. But it's this divine, loving compassion that comes to us whenever we call out for it. It will take whatever form we need to see it in. And one of the things Mary reportedly said, this is all, of course, coming through a very orthodox Catholic, Catholic translator, so you don't know how much is being colored by the translator. I didn't know. But one of the things that she reportedly said was, 
they, she told the young people to model themselves after a woman named Pasha in the village. And they said, well, how can we do that? Pasha's a Muslim. And reportedly, Mary said, God doesn't make division. People do that. She is a saintly, holy woman. You know, so you should emulate Pasha. So there's also a very um, sort of anarchic and democratic impulse in these apparitions. And remember, this is a phenomenon that always goes on outside the church. As does pilgrimage. You know, and as the pews are being emptied, the numbers of pilgrims are going up. Thousands and thousands more pilgrimages are being made, whether it's in Catholicism or in the East. More and more people are going on pilgrimage. And it's a phenomenon that the church, the institution, can't really control. can sort of like be involved with, have masses along the way, but it's really sort of outside their purview. The same with the apparitions. So, you know, you won't hear the Pope repeating that apparition or even saying it's, it's necessarily true. But I just think it's interesting what goes on outside of the church structure. There's supposedly a message from the divine, which is that all people were to be friends and reconciled with everyone, not just Catholics with Catholics, you know, including Muslims, whatever. We're to be reconciled with one another. We're to pray. We're to forgive one another. That was one thing. Did I mention? Phil had asked me to mention about. On, did I say on, in Poland one of the ceremonies we did just before the shrine was we had a forgiveness ceremony. Did I tell you about that? Boy, if we could do this today, it was so powerful. The day before we entered Częstochowa. We were told to think about, to go off and pray a little bit, and think about anyone on the pilgrimage during the walk. Now, there were like 200 people in each group, and, you know, as I said, there were thousands of people. Think of if there was anyone in your group that you had had an unkind thought towards, or that you had been unkind to, or said something unkind to. Now, I didn't speak Polish, so <laughs> nor understand it, so, I, you know, it was a little hard for me to sort of feel my way into that, because I've had hadn't been able to communicate with so many people. I was very limited. But um, sure enough, someone who I'd been irritated by or who I'd thought poorly of, what we had to do was then go around to each person and go up to them, kiss them three times, this is very Polish, uh, on the cheeks and say, which means, please forgive me. I'm sorry for any harm I've done to you. Please forgive me. So we went around in our group of 200 and people came up to me that sure enough, I had not had a word with them, but I'd been irritated by that person. And, or something had happened and they asked for my forgiveness and I asked for theirs. It was a wonderfully cleansing, healing ceremony. Again, melting down our defenses, getting away from this idea of division and separation, and acknowledging that we do hurt one another, often inadvertently, and simply saying, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And the immense cleansing and purifying of the heart, again, refreshing the heart, piercing that heart, opening it. That's the transformation. So that's kind of a long-winded reply to whatever somebody asked me. But Anyone else? I have a reflection on something that uh, you mentioned and tying this in something that Ethan said this morning. Uh, this happened last year and... Uh, to me. The single largest response in the United States against the government, uh, proposed government policy occurred last year with regard to the proposed organic standards in the Department of Agriculture. In the shortest period of time, over half a million people said, no, they're not going to accept this, which is really fighting for Mother Nature. 
and also against scientism, the prevailing feeling that we're going to accept everything that is established and we're told that we have to follow. And that occurred within the last year, which is a hopeful sign. In Europe, I mean, they're a step ahead of us because they're really protesting bioengineering as well. And uh, I mean, genetic alteration of uh, radiation and things like that, and radiation of food. So I think these things are coming together. Well, it would be very exciting if they do. Yeah. That feminine energy rising up and saying no, fierce compassion. Saying no lovingly, with a pure heart, but saying no. (laughs) Someone else? Speaking of being provocative, um, I don't know a lot about the Black Madonna because I haven't read the books yet, but what I've learned, I've learned today from you. And um, when you talk about the mother of the excluded, and I'm sitting here and I sort of have a background also in family therapy, and I'm thinking of the Black Mafia, and I'm thinking of the Black Madonna, and I'm thinking of how these young men may have manifested a wake-up call. The trench coat mafia? The black trench coat. The trench coat mafia, thank you. But they're black. The coats are black. And I started thinking about, okay, if there's a collective, well, there is a collective, but if there's a family on an unconscious level in a community, and if there's an emissary, and if it is these young men, now this is all hypothesis, of course, but how in effect are they the sort of acting out teenager of a troubled family on a larger scale. And if they represent something like often in a family system, the scapegoat, you know, will be the wake-up call for the family and everybody trudges into family therapy and, you know, the parents are all accusing the kid and, you know, they're sitting there, you know, with all their insanity. So I think that, you know, I was trying to think today you know, of Kosovo, I wonder if Kosovo had happened, if this shooting hadn't I'm trying to make connections today. It seems to be about a lot of making connections in the presentations here about how things are being manifested and how if there can be, um, like one of our conferences once, you know, uh, Gold in the Shadow, it was one of the conferences from way back, and if these young men on some very, very unconscious level are doing the acting out for the Black Madonna, as a wake-up call. It's just a thought. Okay. It's just a, a thought. How how do they represent something that she is trying to manifest in in her coming aware, in us being able to embrace maybe more of the alienated? And how do we get wake-up calls other than things like this? We're pretty unconscious as a, as a collective. And how do wake-up calls come to us except through these kinds of dramas? So there's a lot kind of where that. I was going, yeah. There's a lot in there. So I'm thinking. First, um, I have a reaction. Um, I find myself reacting, associating the Black Madonna with the Black Trench Coat Mafia. Sure. And one of the things I didn't talk about that I want to just mention that I'm trying to do in all my work and with ta- bringing this material forward is break our association of darkness with evil. Okay, or with something bad, with something foreign. Um, and show all these other traditions in which it represents something positive. And suggest that perhaps if 
in the Graduate Theological Union where Houston has been affiliated and where I've been affiliated, we started teaching in our schools of theology that there is such a thing as a black Madonna. And we began to see these images or a dark mother or dark Madonna or Guadalupe even venerated in our churches that then we might be able to be more inclusive and there might not be so many people left out and excluded. And that's something very different than than the kind of racist, negative association we have habitually with darkness in our culture. You know, and the, I, w- I want to encourage you, if you get nothing else out of anything I've said, start noticing every time you use the word dark or black and what you're associating it with and how often it's negative. And begin to ask yourself if there's another word because we unconsciously reinforce our own negativity and racism um, and perpetrate it very unconsciously by always making it negative. So I want to separate the Black Madonna from what you're talking about and say that I don't think they're connected in that way. Well, it can be alchemical and it doesn't have to be a direct link. But if there's a call and there's an answer, we don't know all the steps between the call and the answer. We just know that certain things happen that wake us up. Right. And they, you know, they may seem horrible at the time, like many transformations. But if they ultimately produce something that is of a greater good, then we have to sort of accept their horribleness. And what alchemy, alchemy is about is the transformation of the base, as we all know. And mm-hmm. the first stage of the alchemical process is the darkening, is the negredo, is the raven's head or the crow. But um, I think what you're onto that's correct, and uh, you know, my mind is racing with all these points to try to connect, is that it's not necessarily just uh, and acting out in that family, there's a whole culture here that's getting acted out, I think. With that's those what I'm talking people. about. That, that, you know, in a certain way. And that somehow they too need to be included. And if this could be transformed, it would be miraculous. It absolutely would be But miraculous. isn't it always the adolescent? I mean, Denver's just one story right. of adolescent acting out of a, of a really violent nature lately. Right. It seems to be the adolescent. He, he or she seems to have the means I mean, there's, there's story upon story upon story. Mm-hmm. The young woman here in Chicago that took the live baby out of somebody's womb, you know, in a, during, a, during the execution of a murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I'm just trying to, to say that, you know, if we, since there is a mystery, we don't know all the pieces that connect and what, what would make sense and, and what, how do we frame something like, like um, the family of man and how this, it falls upon that generation or that stage of development to give wake-up calls to all of us. Mm-hmm. And how do we, you know, what do we do about that? I, I love the way the Native Americans view sickness or madness in a culture, and in their society. It belongs to everyone. That's right. And so they gather around that person who is not well, who is sick or who is crazy, whatever, and they, whether it's the Navajo, and they put them in the middle of a sand painting, there's ceremony, there's ritual, there's prayer. And I think each of us with something like this can ask in our own hearts, do we know any young people who've been giving us signs that we haven't acted on, who've been, you know, troubled and that we've ignored? You know, take it back into our own life. What can we do in our own immediate situation with a troubled teenager that we might know? That's one response. But the other is to really look at our culture and look at what we can do the way we have things set up societally 
and actively begin to work on behalf of young people. Because I think you're right, they are acting out something. And, it, and in the bond between women, I was interested not only in these female deities, the feminine face of God, but how this is lived and manifested. And so I went to be not only to get more teachings on the female deities of Durga, Kali, Tara, and the Black Madonna, but to be with women who lived with fierce compassion, both Mother Teresa's sisters and also the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina, who today are still demonstrating, this is what, since 1976, 23 years later, every week they still do not know where their children, what happened to their children who disappeared. And my friend Laura, who lost seven members of her own family, what I saw when I went down there to Buenos Aires and demonstrated with these women and listened to their stories, some of which I've written about in The Bomb Between Women, I realized that those women who were at first called Las Locas, the crazy ones, because they showed up as soon as their families were missing. They showed up against the law, against the military law, and demanded to know where their young ones were. And even though the military started taking some of their members, who then disappeared. They continued every week to show up again and refused to be intimidated and demand to know the whereabouts of their family. They were viewed as crazy for a long time because they were carrying the burden of a whole culture who was in denial. And when I was there in 95 demonstrating, a man came up to us and began to attack my friend Laura, not literally, but verbally and say, you're making this up because she had buttons on of all her disappeared children for the demonstration and I was taking her picture and he came up and he was upset that I was taking her picture and was saying, you know, that, that this is all a fiction, that nothing happened, no one disappeared. And yet we know this is true, but this is the denial. So there are forces of denial that, that when they operate in the culture, a tremendous distortion takes place and the perversion that went on with the military that disappeared in all these countries that's going on in Yugoslavia now is that kind of acting out that's going on that's now infecting our children. It isn't happening over there, it's happening here. And I think it's our own denial that we're being, I think you're right, we're being forced to look at. The challenge is, can we do this as a community? Can we claim these young people who did this horrible thing as part of ourselves, or will we simply ship them off to prison for the rest of their lives and never come to know or include and acknowledge what this means? for us in our society. Am I making sense? You're looking puzzled. No, I'm just thinking, um, once again, I, I'm just going back to, you know, how transformation occurs in ways that we have yet to understand. And I have an image of, that you gave us of the stamping out of the demons by the Black Madonna. And, you know, how does one stamp out a demon? Sometimes it comes through many different doorways. It, comes, it can come through the back door, and we don't necessarily recognize it at the time. It's true. Yeah. And I think that the Black Madonna being, the Dark Mother being famous for being a miracle worker and a healer, in terms of if we're, one were to pray or be inclined in that direction, pray for guidance, because she is a great, a powerful miracle worker, and perhaps some guidance could come. But I would be reluctant to say that, I'm going to stop, that it was the Black Madonna being, doing the killing or having something to do with the killing in order to wake us up. I, I just really want to keep that separate. I hear that. Am I being clear about that? Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Yeah.
This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.